and good morning to you all. I come here this morning as the bearer of good news, but there's also bad news. And I'm sure you've heard plenty of the good news, bad news jokes. The format usually uh, begins where a person says to another, I have good news, and then there comes, but I also have bad news, and therein is the punchline. Well, no jokes this morning, I, I promise you that. Instead, we're going to look at some really heavy stuff. That's a phrase from the 60s for those of you too young to remember the 60s. We'll start, though, with the bad news, because in this case, if you don't understand the bad news, well, the good news is really not going to seem all that good. But if you do understand the bad news, and to the extent that you do, the good news is not only good, it's great. And I'll go so far as to say it's the best news you'll ever hear. So with that in mind, let's look once again at our Old Testament reading in Deuteronomy chapter 30. Deuteronomy means literally second law. It is Moses reiterating much of what has already been said in the three previous books of the law, along with some words of encouragement and some words of warning to those Israelites, those children of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to whom God promised the land. You recall that first generation, those who not only witnessed the Exodus, but those who experienced it and participated in it and saw all the things that God did. That first generation failed miserably. Their faith completely melted down, as we would say, even to the point of longing for the good old days back in Egypt. <laughs> I always smile when I think of that, the good old days back in Egypt, under slavery, making bricks day in and day out. Well, for that, they were sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years in the Sinai Desert, wandering for 40 years until that first generation, all the adults, were gone. And now, as that second generation is about to cross the Jordan River and occupy the land of promise, Moses has some parting words for them. Moses is not going to accompany them, by the way, and so these, these words take on added meaning with that in mind. And here's what he says from our reading this morning. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us. It's not over your head uh, that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. This kind of has the feel of a pep talk, doesn't it, before the game. Moses is saying, it's not too hard. It's not obscure. The, the word of God is not vague or hard to grasp. It's simple. It's right here in black and white. It's not something that's way over your head. It's right in front of you. As we remind ourselves this uh, every Lord's Day, that the Ten Commandments themselves really boil down to two simple things, right? Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. Very simple. And Moses' words come with both a promise and a warning. You see, good news, bad news. Good news is, do what God says, and you'll live and prosper in the land. Don't do what God says, and you won't. Life and death. Moses says, choose life. You can do it. These are the options. These are the only two. It's not let's make a deal. There's no door number three. This is serious business. Why? Because God is holy, and he rightly insists that those of us who are made in his image be holy as well. Of course, God, being the ultimate realist, 
knew that they would fail. And so built into God's laws for Israel was an elaborate and detailed system of sacrifices, usually in the form of the burnt offering of some animal for when they failed to keep the laws of God. And the lesson for them, as well as for us in all of that, is really three simple truths. One is sin is serious. Secondly, sin is costly. You see, they had to give up that animal of their own substance. It wasn't free. And not only that, but sin is deadly. Heavy stuff. Sometimes when I arrive at my office on Claremont Road, if the wind is right, I am greeted by the most wonderful aroma of burning hickory, working its magic on pork and beef brisket and chicken. It's coming from a little barbecue place only about 100, 100 yards down the road from my office called Community Barbecue. Any of you know that place in Decatur? Any of you? Oh, some of you know it. Okay. Well, the image in my mind of the temple, as I think about the temple of God there in Jerusalem, or think about that portable temple called the tabernacle that followed the Israelites through the Sinai and on into the, the promised land. When I think about that, I see a continuous column of smoke ascending, as it were, into the heavens, the smell of which and the sight of which served as a silent and constant reminder to God's people that we serve a holy God who demands that we be holy and who requires the death of all who defy his laws. The, look, the book of Leviticus constantly describes these sacrifices and almost invariably it says that when you do that, it is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But I rather imagine for those Israelites, it became anything less than that. We're not talking about slowly smoked pork and beef brisket. No, we're talking about animals that have been utterly destroyed by fire. Fat, skin, everything. Entrails, everything, burnt to a crisp. And here's this huge column of smoke. And so it's not an aroma. It's the stench of sin and of moral failure and death. And they were reminded of it day in and day out. Preacher. Shades of Jonathan Edwards. Some of you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, do you? Some of you do. Jonathan Edwards, when he died in 1758, was the president of the College of New Jersey, which later became known as Princeton University. Very smart man. Wrote books on philosophy, books on theology, even wrote books on natural history. But he's most remembered, if he's remembered at all, by people in America as being the preacher of a very famous sermon, and it was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And some of you may be thinking this morning, you're, you're calling up Edwards? Preacher, haven't we gone beyond all that? I mean, it was 300 years ago. Let me share something with you from C.S. Lewis that came to my mind as I thought about that question. Lewis says, what would really satisfy us would be a God who said of anything we happen to be doing, what does it matter so long as they are contented? And as I read that, art, that, that quote again, I thought about a common expression we hear in our own day and age. The heart wants what the heart wants. What a repulsive, stupid saying. Please don't ever say it in my hearing. I beg of you not to. 
Of course we want what we want, as if that justifies any behavior. Lewis goes on to say, we want, in fact, not so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven, <laughs> a senile benevolence who, as they say, liked to see the young people enjoying themselves and whose plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. And isn't that the God that most of the people you know around you envision or would like? Yes, it is. <laughs> it surely is. I hope it's not the God you envision. Ah, still you say, preacher, that's Old Testament. That's Moses. We follow Jesus, meek and mild. Really? Were you paying attention to the gospel reading this morning? <laughs> Our gospel reading says, not so fast. And in fact, in the verses just prior to that, in last Sunday morning's gospel reading, our Lord says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Well, why would they think that? Well, as you read through the gospels, you can't help but notice how often the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious establishment, complained constantly that Jesus and his followers were breaking the law. And is it just me, or does it seem to you as if there were times when our Lord actually went out of his way to rattle their cage a little? Doesn't it seem that way? It does to me. Take, for example, the fourth commandment, simplest of all commandments. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. And how do you do that? Don't work. What a, what a great commandment. There were no days off in the ancient world. There were no weekends. That's easy. Take a day off. It applied to the servants and even to the beasts of burdens. No offense to you lawyers out there, but in lawyerly fashion, they began to ask one another, ah, but what constitutes work? And so they fashioned all sorts of examples, literally hundreds, I think over 400, and still counting, I believe, ways that you could define what constitutes work and what doesn't. Perhaps in a sincere effort on the part of some to make sure they didn't break the Sabbath, but Often, I suspect, they were, in lawyerly fashion, creating loopholes, which is what lawyers do. Well, Jesus, as our gospel reading indicates, did not come to abolish the law or even to weaken the law. In fact, he reveals its true intent, its deepest intent, that it's not merely a matter of our actions, as important as that is, but also of our thoughts and our feelings. The first example he gives is that of murder. And I imagine some, maybe this morning and some in Jesus' day saying, well, at least that's one I haven't broken yet. You know, well, it's a good thing looks can't kill, though, isn't it? Huh. And our Lord says, yes, those might just be cartoon daggers flying out of your eyes, but that hateful, vengeful look, that unforgiving spirit puts us in danger of the fires of hell just as well. And likewise, he goes on to mention the seventh commandment, and Jesus says, well, you, you may have withstood that temptation as well to this point, but your lust reveals an adulterous heart. And that too places us in danger of eternal damnation. Say, preacher, you weren't kidding. <laughs> in case you haven't noticed, the bad news just got worse. So is the prospect of all this the least bit frightening to you? Does it trouble you in the least? Well, it certainly was for a young German Augustinian monk by the name of Martin Luther, who 500 years ago this year, in 1517, nailed 
95 theses, or as we would call them, talking points, to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he became one of the architects of the Protestant Reformation. But before all that, Luther struggled. His soul was constantly in agony. Why? Because he knew what we better know as well, that our God is a holy God, and he requires that we be holy as well. And he knew that try as he might, he was not. Think of this this morning in terms of a ledger. I like to think in pictures. They're so helpful. Think of a ledger, simple ledger. On one side, you have liabilities. Those are our sins. And do we not, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our, our, our prayer says, forgive us our trespasses. The, the fact is, in the ESV and most translations, modern English, it refers to them as debts. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, for that is what indeed sin is. And then on the other column, the assets, those will be our, our good deeds, the good things that we do. And the thing that troubled Luther was when he read in Romans 1.17, where it says, for in the gospel, and gospel literally means good news, we're coming to the good news, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, or from faith start to finish, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now that phrase, righteousness of God, is what plagued Luther. It's just another way of saying that God is holy and that God punishes sinners, which is not good news. And Luther knew it because he knew he wasn't good. He was not at peace with God. And the harder he tried, the worse things got. Uh, he began to spend more and more time in the confessional booth. Just, just endless hours in the confessional booth, and it just didn't seem to help. Later, Luther admitted that he had begun to hate God for requiring of us that which we simply cannot do. Until one day, Luther saw it. One day the light went on and Luther saw it. Listen to his own words. Luther said, I grasped that the righteousness of God is that righteousness which through grace and sheer mercy God justifies us through faith. And thereupon Luther says, I felt myself to be reborn. Sounds like an evangelical. To have gone through open doors and into paradise. And indeed he was. He was at peace with God. Luther discovered the true gospel, the good news that the righteousness of God is not just that righteousness he demands, though it is, but is that which is given to us as a gift, namely the very righteousness of Christ himself. Another great man of the church who understood this and expressed it so beautifully in the hymn we just sang was an Anglican priest by the name of Augustus Toplady. How many of you knew that was an Anglican hymn? Come on, raise your hand. Oh, now you know. Now you know. That's a great Anglican hymn. It's a great hymn no matter what. Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin. Did you notice the phrase? The double cure. Safe from wrath. Make me pure. Think again of the ledger. Why do we have the wrath of God? Because we have this huge debt. Sins piling up one after another, day in, day out. The older we get, the higher the debt gets. But we also need to be made pure. Even if we have, we're rid of that, we are not righteous. We're not, we, don't, we have no good works. I mean, the few good works we have in the ledger column, well, they're rather paltry. Are they not? I mean, every Sunday we confess that there are things that we should have done that we have failed to do. And not only that, but even the, the good deeds that we do, are they not somehow tainted with things like enlightened self-interest, guilt, pride, even those things can corrupt even the best of things that we do. Great verse that describes this 
is 2 Corinthians 5.21. I memorized it so many years ago. God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Another of the reformers, John Calvin, called this the wondrous exchange. And think of it. Jesus trades places with us. He exchanges his righteousness for our sins so that we no longer have any righteousness and he bears his sins in his own body on the cross. Calvin said this, having taken upon himself the burden of unrighteousness with which we were oppressed, he has clothed us with his own righteousness. Amen. Second verse says, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Jesus, as we saw earlier, said that he came to fulfill the law. That's exactly what he did. Not only by keeping it personally in himself, that's, that's pretty evident, but also by taking that which the law justly demands of the sinner, namely the death of the sinner upon himself. And you need to just pause and think about that for a moment. It's it's one thing for Jesus to keep the law perfectly. He is the Son of God. But rather, he also takes that which God demands of you and I in himself. He, the sinless one, dies the death of the sinner, dies as a criminal in disgrace, but of course rises from the dead showing that he has defeated all the powers of sin and evil and even death. This morning we began reading Moses. The law is right here, Moses says. It's not off up in the heavens, not hidden somewhere across the ocean. Those words are quoted in the New Testament by none other than St. Paul himself, only with a slightly different twist. Now listen carefully, because here it all is. This is how the bad news becomes the good news and indeed even the great news news. Paul says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based upon the law, that's what we just read, that he who does the commandments, ah, he who does the commandments shall live in them, not he who tries. God doesn't grade on a curve. He who tries, no, as if we always do, and we don't. But the righteousness based on faith says, here he quotes Moses, do not say in your heart, who will ascend to heaven? That is to bring the law down? No, to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss, into hell? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word, notice, not the law, the word is near you in your mouth and your heart. And that is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. That word means to be declared righteous. God declares you and I righteous. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, will not experience that judgment. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, Gentile, For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing the riches on all who call him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So my question to you this morning is simply this. Is that true of you? Are you at peace with God? Have you struggled like Luther and but come to that place where you said, yes, I get it. I understand. Christ dies in my place and I trust him. I believe him. I take him as my Lord and Savior. Well, if not, 
May the words of Top Lady's third verse be the sincere prayer of your heart. Listen, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And you know something? He will. He absolutely will. His promise to you is still good. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, Jesus says, and my burden is light. And why is that? Because he's fulfilled the law for us. And so this morning, if that is you, cast aside the burden of your sin and repentance. Cast aside your self-righteousness, your feeble attempts to please God, and cast yourself upon the risen Lord. And if that is true of you, this morning as you come to the Lord's table, do so as you should always do, but this morning especially with a heart filled with gratitude to the one who died in your place and rose from the dead and still come as we always come with empty hands that can only do one thing, and that is to receive the gift of Christ's body broken for us and his blood shed for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.